welcome to... Wait a second. Calvin, where are we? Well, we're in the recording studio, but this isn't our podcast. I think this is another show on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Oh man, we gotta get out of here. Wait, maybe we should tell them about our show. Hey, that's a swell idea. Our show, Let's Pharmanize, is everything you'd want in a pharmacy podcast. History, pop culture, sex appeal, and humor. We've covered the drug from Limitless, medicine of World War II, the ancient history of birth control, and more. Let's open the vault. Crack that baby open. Does one of the side effects of this medication include a good time? (laughs) Yeah, it's E. So there's G-M-A-D, and then there's E. E stands for allergies. (laughs) It's like this spider, like, drapey thing. We have used wet meatloaf five times in this conversation, and that is five too many times to use the term wet meatloaf. It's like a round lasagna. I mean, you know, it hurts pretty bad, and you're thinking... Man, Onga Bunga, this is pretty bad. <laughs> we post new episodes every Monday. Check out Let's Farmanize on your favorite podcast platform and social media. All that and more on Let's Farmanize. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. We believe pharmacists are the best positioned providers to lead in PGX. Pharmacogenomics is the study of how genes affect a person's response to drugs. This relatively new field combines pharmacology and genomics to develop effective, safe medications and doses that will be tailored to a person's genetic makeup. This podcast is dedicated to pharmacists with an interest in learning more about the data analytics, industry trends, and evidence-based usage of pharmacogenomics. Welcome to PGX for Pharmacists, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. If you've been a listener of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, especially over the last two years, there's an acceleration in content that we're pushing out regarding pharmacogenomics, the science, the application in the hands of a pharmacist, it's an incredibly powerful diagnostic tool, and it's going to continue to rise. It's going to continue to be extremely relevant, and it's saving lives. I'm so excited about today's episode because of the people that are running and pushing and formulating and developing new ways of using the science of pharmacogenomics. Uh, Once again, PGX for Pharmacists brought to you by the Pharmacy Podcast Network with our host, Dr. Becky Winslow. Becky, I am so excited about it. I didn't want to give it away to our our listeners. I want you to, but I'm turning this show over to you. Uh, Award winner, top 20 podcasts in the world about genomics. Uh, Becky, we absolutely love you. Thanks so much, Todd. Um, I'm so excited to be here again with you guys today. Um, You know, I usually start my podcast off by giving a a brief history of, of my experience in pharmacogenomics and you know, just to let my listeners know that they can trust me for their pharmacogenomics information. But I'll be honest, um, the guests that we have today really, um, my, my, my experiences uh, do not come close to what he has done in pharmacogenomics. So I just want to jump right in. Let's get to the, the special guest that's joined us today. I will point out that today's episode is the first episode in my PGX for Pharmacists podcast series entitled The State of the PGX Industry, Pharmacogenomics Science and Research. As you guys know, 
Um, I have a couple of series running simultaneously with uh, different aspects of pharmacogenomics content. So today is our first for pharmacogenomic science and research. So, you know, in addition to the fact that my special guest um, has so much more experience than me, um, I want to kind of admit to the audience that pharmacogenomic science fascinates me but it's not my everyday work in pharmacogenomics. So, um, you know, secondly, I want to say that I'm super grateful to know and work with colleagues who are pharmacogenomic science experts so that I can be great at what I am great at in pharmacogenomics. And that is producing products that reduce barriers to the clinical implementation of pharmacogenomics. Uh, you know, after all, it takes a village to raise pharmacogenomics uh, from the research bench to the rock star medication therapy management. We've been at it for many years now, and it's, it's coming to fruition. I won't delay anymore. Not only am I excited about this inaugural podcast episode, I am super honored to be joined by one such pharmacogenomic science expert colleague who also happens to be, drum roll, one of the first people who inspired me to continue to pursue pharmacogenomics as my pharmacy career niche over four years ago. After hearing this person present personalized medicine and genomics, what's in it for pharmacists in Asheville, North Carolina in 2017? I knew pharmacogenomics was a pharmacy niche in which I could apply my education, my clinical implementation skills, and my wisdom that I gained in my career roles to help move the needle forward in an area of pharmacy that needed advocates and needed solutions. Without any further ado, Dr. Howard McCloy, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Had anyone told me four years ago, when I was sitting in your audience at the Mountain Area Health Education Center Biltmore campus, that I would one day invite you to join me as a guest on my pharmacogenomics podcast, I would have probably laughed at them. Thank you for the inspiration four years ago, and thank you for joining me on the podcast to hopefully continue to inspire others to advocate for PGX and to pursue a career in pharmacogenomics. Our listeners today may be just like I was eight years ago, seeking to transition into non-traditional pharmacist careers and looking for a role model. They will no doubt be inspired by your journey, how you've personally witnessed pharmacogenomics evolve through your career and your vision for where pharmacogenomics is headed. Before we dive into the history of drug gene pair discovery versus current drug gene pair discovery, please briefly describe for the audience your education, how you began as a pharmacist at Thomas Jefferson University, your decision to pursue your PharmD, and how you transitioned into your various job titles as a PharmD working in pharmacogenomics. Well, thank you so much, Becky. It's really a pleasure to be on here, and I, I love what you're doing for the field. I think the, you know, I, I know what you've done in in as a practitioner and as a, a scientist, um, helping drive the field. Uh, out in the uh, out in the wild, um, but these podcasts are are really important for allowing folks to go forward, especially the folks that may not have the confidence that they don't realize there's an army behind them trying to really help them out. So it's 
really exciting to be on here. Um, I knew that there were two things in pharmacy school that um, would never be important to me. I did a bachelor's in pharmacy at University of Washington, um, saw the clinical pharmacist, had more fun than the, the, um, some of the other pharmacists. And so I went on to get a PharmD at Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science. But I, I knew for sure there were two things that would not be important. One of them was the genome, and the other one was the immune system. Because, I mean, those don't matter. It's all about pharmacokinetics. Right. It's all about uh, drugs. And, of course, uh, both those things are two of the most important things in my life right now in terms of, <laughs> in terms of, of trying to, to drive practice forward. Um, so um, at least don't take me to Vegas for those uh, in those areas. Um, I, after, after that, I, um, I went down and, and did a um, clinical research fellowship, a three-year fellowship down at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And during that time, we were managing the care of a number of children. There was a protocol for acute leukemia where the, the pharmacist chose the dose of chemotherapy. They randomized the standard dose versus blood level guided dosing for the chemo. Um, eventually, that was published in the Journal of Medicine, showed a survival benefit. But the, the idea that we were responsible, mm -hmm. uh, we weren't just advising, we were responsible mm -hmm. for that. That, that was a, a real eye-opener. Pharmacists always hid behind um, the prescriber and right. were not responsible. And I remember one of my professors in pharmacy wow. school openly lamenting that pharmacists don't get sued enough. And what he meant by that is we are not in a place of responsibility right. to even bother getting sued. Mm -hmm. And he wished that we were more uh, responsible. Um, he didn't wish we really got sued, but he wished right. we were responsible. <laughs> the, during that time, there was a little girl who uh, could not tolerate the standard therapy for her leukemia. We dug into why and found that her blood levels were of, of uh, thioguan thioguanine nucleotides were 10 times higher than, than uh, the rest of the children on that particular protocol. And as we dug into why that was, um, because that basically a tenfold over, uh, a, a normal dose for everyone else was mm -hmm. a tenfold overdose for her. Mm -hmm. As we dug into why, ended up finding that a, a single genetic change in a gene that broke down mercaptopurine, the, the drug that she was receiving, was, was what put her at risk. And so that was when the thiopurine methyltransferase story started, that just a single base change out of 3 billion that she had, um, or technically 6 billion, um, were, was enough to, to cause her to get into very severe trouble. And that was interesting. Uh, we did a lot of work on that. And I then had the opportunity to go spend what I thought would be one year in Europe up in, in Glasgow um, and at the, at the Beetson Institute at the University of Glasgow. And so we went over there. I was there for a, a couple of months when I got called by a medical oncologist whose patient was just finishing 21 days of ICU stay. They were going to survive, but all they had received was a single dose of 5-thorouracil. And why? He, you know, he said, you know, you, you understand this stuff. Why, what, why did this happen? Mm -hmm. And so as we dug into that, did some studies of his family, did some, a number of different approaches, we identified, again, a single base change it caused a part of his gene to be skipped so that he could not break down the, this drug. And so lightning has struck twice. Oh. I couldn't ignore the genome any longer. And right. so we, we started really going deeper. And as I've worked um, at the University of Aberdeen um, after Glasgow, at Washington University, St. Louis, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, University of South Florida, um, the that work has really pulled through uh, as we 
try to, to uh, really understand what is it that causes someone to uh, tolerate a drug fine and someone else to, to have something really bad happen. And, you know, my aunt Rita, you know, you give her a Benadryl and she gets super loopy. Um, <laughs> and that's fun for Thanksgiving. You slip Aunt yeah. Rita a Benadryl. And go, but, but the, um, why is that? You know, why is it? So it's even an, even an over-the-counter medicine. There's probably a genetic basis for that. We don't know at the moment. But we can start understanding how over-the-counter medicines work, how generic drugs work, how branded drugs work, and really start individualizing things further. So anyway, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll wind this part down. But it's it's been one of those things where the kind of the fun has dragged me um, yeah. into these areas I never thought I would be. I completely get that. I have I too have followed. Uh, something new and exciting. I was always chasing a challenge. It sounds like you were probably doing the same. Your curiosity, right. <laughs> your curiosity took you to those challenges and, and just wanting to solve problems. So based on my calculations, you actually got involved in pharmacogenomics 10 years or so before the Human Genome Project. Um, were there any specific patients that you wanted to talk about or any specific um genes, medications. You mentioned a few in your biography. Yeah. Let's dig a little deeper. Yeah. So, so for example, that, that little girl with the, ended up having the, the TPMT mutation. Um, the, the concern there was that not only was she, was she getting um, bad side effects, she was needing both red cell and platelet transfusions. It was causing her to miss all her other therapy. And there have been some oh. very nice studies done at St. Jude and elsewhere showing that if you got 50% therapy or less, your outcomes were very poor um, mm -hmm. compared to the people who got their full therapy. And so our concern was not so much driven by, you know, what's, um, you know, what is the, the problem here, but, you know, this, this child's prognosis was suddenly in a very bad place. Also, she's receiving oral mecaptopurine intramuscular at that time, methotrexate, um, was also receiving um, every few weeks uh, intensive chemotherapy, plus some other supportive care. Med she was on a bunch of medicines. Yeah. And so did we need to decrease the dose of everything? You know, what, what did we need to do? And you know, that's often a, a problem we faced is you have a patient who's on seven medicines and it could be that one of them's the culprit. It could be all seven of them the culprit. You know, how do you really get to that? And that was an example where we we had the ability to look at blood levels, which helped. Um, we looked at blood levels, found that it was not the methotrexate, it was not the other drugs, it was the mercaptopurine. We were able to first switch her to a very low dose, you know, we, one tenth of the normal dose. We, we like to joke that we just had her wow. lick a tablet every once in a while. Um, <laughs> Sounds like and. And so what, by just changing that dosage, we, she now was able to tolerate all of her medicine, other medicines, did not require any additional transfusions, um, it, it, all sorts of different um, aspects there uh, that, that um, were favorable in terms of making that change. As we then went on to dig into why that happened, because it did happen to some other children as well. So we had you know, multiple reasons to care. Um, as we dug in there, we found the genetic change that allowed us to now start screening children so that you could find that before it ever happened, before the toxicity ever happened. Right. Um, and that, that was really an informative lesson to me. During that time as well, we also looked, um, we, one of the projects I was involved with was what would now be called disparities research. 
we noticed that even though St. Jude gave, um, you know, all the care was free and that the care was not just the, the medical care, but also housing mm-hmm. and, and food and um, other aspects of the child's health, you know, lots of elements of, of the patient's life were covered by St. Jude. And the, yet the outcomes for African-American children were in general poorer than were seen for, for Caucasian children. Also, um, for, uh, was different for Hispanic children um, and Asian children. Why, why was that? What was going on? And so we, we dug into that. We didn't have the, the technology and the, and the training to dig into some of the, the social aspects, which are, were obviously very important there. But as we dug into it, what we found was the frequency of, in this case, TPMT mutations was different in African-American uh, children compared to uh, Caucasian children, just to take that example. Mm-hmm. And also which genetic variants happened was different. So the you know to be a science nerd, the TPMT star three A was most common in Caucasians, uh-huh. whereas the TP, TPMT star three C was most common in, um, in in the African American children. And then subsequently, we did studies in Africa um, and in other parts of the world as well, um, and we're able to demonstrate that this that these differences are there, and that led us to then look at other examples. So, for example, we looked at the CYP2D6 gene and found genetic differences both in the frequency and which variants were present. That again changed our strategy because if we're only looking at a narrow view, we may miss uh, what's important for our patient population. And you say, oh, well, you know, the African continent versus the European continent, of course, there'll be differences. Well, even within, even if you go from different parts of Ireland, which you think are pretty homogeneous, there are differences in allele frequencies. And so really comes back to the science needs to be broad. um, But but then the app, the tools we use, as we'll get into, need to also be broad. Absolutely. Um you know, these cases were very patient-oriented. Um, I love that you pointed out that it matters, uh, different gene variants, um, not just the gene, but which gene variants are tested and such based based on the population um, that you're trying to help. Um, and, you know, most of these discoveries, uh, these discoveries that you've talked about thus far were because a bad event led to the discovery. Um so that's the phenotype to genotype approach um, in the field of pharmacogenomics. Um, you want to elaborate any more on phenotype to genotype before we proceed to some of the others? Yeah, I think it's important for, for um, those of you that are in pharmacogenomics today to remember that it wasn't that long ago we did not have a draft of the of the human genome. <laughs> we, right. we really didn't know a lot about what genes were important. We may have identified that there was a difference between one group or another. I mean, the, the acetylation of, of anti-malarial drugs it was known back in the 1950s, but it wasn't until the 1990s that we figured out what was the gene responsible and mm-hmm. what happened there. In, in terms of, of CYP2D6, you know, very important for pain control, for antidepressants, for antiemetics, a number of different areas. That particular example, at least part of it, was uh, there was a, a um, phase one physician in London, uh, Robert Smith, uh, that's his real name. Um, he, um, he had a practice where when he tried a new medicine, 
um, in, you know, opened a clinical trial for new medicine, he was the first patient. Now, these were not cancer medicines. These were like blood pressure medicines and such. Right. And so he took a dose of, of, a, of a new medicine from Roche called the Brisequin. Mm-hmm. For first time in human study, he took the first dose and the plan was to then measure blood levels and urine blood drug levels and, you know, the, the usual types of uh, pharmacokinetics and other things, measure blood pressures. And well, within 15 minutes, he collapsed. Oh, wow. And as he was being rushed to the emergency department, his fellows were still taking blood samples and <laughs> doing all that kind of stuff. He, he survived and he went on and was able to demonstrate that the the oxidation of debrizoquin was was different in him compared to other volunteers that were on that study. Wow. And that that first thing, you know, Bob falling down. Yeah, led to trying to understand why did Bob fall down, mm-hmm. which led to discovery of the gene the CYP2D6 mm-hmm. and the other genes near nearby it, which led to now understanding the variants, which now led to the you know, modern day application that we have, and in those types of examples, similar with with um, CYP2C19. Um, there have been a number of different folks that were discovering, and Daly in particular up in Newcastle was was uh, critical to a lot of these pieces. But in the in the use of, of warfarin, you know, it was known that there were differences in warfarin blood levels. It was mm-hmm. known there were differences in between different um, racial and ethnic groups in terms of the the ability to metabolize warfarin, the, the dose needed for a stable INR, that sort of thing. Um, as you look at the, the the extremes, the people who needed excuse me, one, one milligram of warfarin rather than, than five or the right. person who needed something else uh, extreme. That, that was dug into and um, eventually CYP2C19 was found. You look into it further, you find that these variants were part of the explanation for why someone might need a very low dose of, of the medicine. Mm-hmm. And so that, that sort of approach um, was very much, there's a problem and we need to figure out what's causing the problem and then that allowed discovery of the gene. And then if you pivot forward, there have been some, some wonderful studies. You know, for example, in the asthma area, the, the um, adenoreceptor beta 2, the ADRB2 mm-hmm. example, um, that was something where the gene was found. There, the genetic variants in these genes were identified. And they were then applied to large cohorts of patients with asthma. Okay. And... That's not something that we use necessarily routinely in many settings, right. but there's some very nice data demonstrating that why one of the reasons why we see differences in response to beta agonist uh, therapy in African-American children versus Caucasian mm-hmm. children or mm-hmm. in the African subcontinent versus other continents is because of the high frequency of the variations in this gene. So, you know, the, the standard inhaler for asthma for most kids is unlikely to work for a a, a right. child with asthma in in sub-Saharan Africa uh, because yeah. of the frequency of these variants. And that was something where the gene was found and then it was applied. Same with the V-Core C1. Uh, the I still remember when the folks from Seattle you know called me to say, "Hey, we think we might have the target for warfarin identified." <laughs> and Brian uh-huh. Gage and myself had a large clinical cohort from Washington University that we worked with mm-hmm. the folks. So we had University of Washington and Washington University working together just to confuse nice. everyone. Um, and again, taking the genetics, applying it to the patient cohort, identifying, wow, 
this gene actually is responsible for right. differences in dosing and in, for resistance. You know, the people that need 10 milligrams of, of warfarin because mm -hmm. they have certain genetic variants in B4C1. You know, so, you know, again, it was, it was that example of how you can find things because something bad has happened and you want to explain why. Or you can you have an interesting candidate gene and you go and apply it, and really both of them are relevant for today. Yeah. Because there's still my aunt Rita with that response to Benadryl, yes. and you wonder like what's up with that. And then you also <laughs> can find an interesting gene and you can apply it to a clinical cohort and say, well, is this important? And if it is, let's start implementing it. I love that. I love that you were able to to illustrate um, for the audience the transition or maybe the. Um, from phenotype to genotype um, approach to the genotype to phenotype approach, but then, you know, point out that they're still both very important. Um, so, Howard, um, many of the people that are, are listening to the podcast today are pharmacists, um, and, and a lot of them are interested in pursuing a practice in the clinical application of pharmacogenomics, and you've told us a whole bunch about the science, um, and the science I know for myself, for my own practice, that the science is so critical to the clinical application of pharmacogenomics, you, you need to have an appreciation for the science um, to apply it clinically. Uh, based on your knowledge and experiences, um, how important do you feel it is to understand the mechanism of gene variant drug interaction to the routine everyday practice of pharmacogenomics in the clinic? So that's a, that, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> It's, it's one of those yes and no type right. questions because, um, you know, if you think about drug-drug interactions, mm -hmm. you, you typically will know something about the basis of that interaction in order to make recommendations on how serious it is, how, you know, is that a showstopper or is that something where you monitor right. or, you know, um, and the same is true with the, with the gene-drug interactions. If you know, for example, with CYP2C9, you, you know that that is altering the pharmacokinetics of warfarin. Mm -hmm. So if you get a call from a dentist saying, my a patient brought me some genetics, what do I yeah. do? You can say, well, wait a minute, maybe this person should stop their warfarin a day or two earlier than you normally would. <laughs> so that they're there because it's going to take them a little bit longer to get rid of it um, because of the CYP2C19. Whereas in speedcore C1, same drug, not exactly the same kinetics. And so there wouldn't be the same, you know, temporal um, issues there. So knowing something about the mechanism is important. Understanding that there are variations that cause dramatic effects on the gene and others that cause important but modest effects on the gene is, is also important. And that it may be the difference between a different dose of a drug or a different drug. So, it, you know, the, the CYP2D6 star 10 is a, is a great example where that's something that definitely alters CYP2D6 enzyme activity, yes. but is, is something where you can often overcome it with a different dose of the drug mm -hmm. rather than, you know, if you have a, a gene deletion uh, or, or some of the other variants that are completely knocking out the enzyme activity, you're not going to use codeine, you're not going to use oxycodone, you're going to go to something else because your chances of it working are just so low. 
Um, and so you, you need to understand a little bit about the mechanism, but it's, it's not like you're a pharmacy student, you know, rounding with a preceptor who, um, has been spending <laughs> all day trying to get you, you know, trying to come up with gotcha questions. I mean, right. there are, exactly. you could go as deep as you want into the history of pharmacogenomics and you could, you know, do a nice whiteboard presentation on the, the, um, how a, a protein fold, um, a, you know, the drug goes into a protein folding of a pocket and does this and does that. That's fine. You know, if nerd yourself out as much as you need to, um, because it's, you know, that's who we are. But if you're going to be practicing pharmacogenomics, it's the practice of pharmaco that's the important part. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the genomics is the tool that you're using. And so I, I encourage pharmacists when they're talking about practicing uh, pharmacogenomics to think carefully about what they're really practicing. They're really practicing mm -hmm. rational therapeutics. Right. They're, they're trying to come up with some hard choices. You know, we're, we're really blessed right now where it's a buffet of options we have available to us. It's, it's rare that there's just one drug for treating disease. It does happen, but yeah. there's often, you know, take hypertension. You've got almost 100 FDA approved drugs or drug combinations to choose from. I mean, what do you pick? You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. you know, diabetes now. You have, you know, six different classes, seven different classes, whatever it is nowadays. Um, and, and so... Choosing from amongst equal options, that's going to be still a fair amount of art as well as some science. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so that's a long way of saying, yeah, you need to know a little bit about the mechanism, but not, you know, it's not a requirement that you're able to um, go down to the local university and debate um, the mechanisms right. that are, you know, happening there. Right. Or even, for example, go in the lab and perform a test. Um, Right, you know, right. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I've worked with pharmacogenomics labs, but don't ask me to go in there and actually perform a test and be able to explain what I'm doing and, and you know, how we get the pharmacogenomics data out of that test. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, knowing uh, what you need to know to be good at what you're doing is is the key, I yeah. think, to uh, part yeah. of this conversation. Um, so while we're on that topic, um, the technology behind pharmacogenomics testing has changed quite a bit over the past years. And, and like I just mentioned, it's daunting to me. I know it's daunting to other practitioners. Um, can you describe for us the different technologies that are used to sequence pharmacogenes today for you know, those geeks that are out there, I call myself a geek. I just said to someone recently that my hobby is being a geek. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if you could tell us uh, the difference between uh, SNP testing and whole genome testing and, and tell us, you know, how critical is it to have a deep understanding of, of the differences between those those PGX assays and, and so. Yeah, and so it... It, um, you know, it's also one of those, you know, incredibly important, but also not that important types of answers. Mm -hmm. So you may or may not know how bilirubin is measured at the laboratory that, that measured it. Um, you, you, you might know that you might not know that, but you know what to do with it. And I think that the, the key thing is understanding what is being measured and what to do with it. So a, a pharmacogenomics report may come back and not mention a gene of interest. Well, is that because it wasn't on the platform and they didn't even look at that gene? Or is that because they looked at the gene very thoroughly and didn't find anything worth talking about? Huge difference. 
a difference between knowing that things are safe versus falsely thinking that things are safe. And so understanding those differences are important. It is important you know what what the test is. Um, just because you, you may not be looking for everything you want. There are some tests out there that don't measure CYP2D6 copy number, but they'll measure some of the variance in CYP2D6. Well, that's certainly a whole lot better than not having copy number, but we know that copy right. number is is uh, has the chance to be very dramatically important for pain control, for depression, for some other, other areas like that. So um, knowing what technology is being used is important. Um, it's also important that a pharmacist not buy in too much to the technology. And I mentioned that because sometimes people just, you know, oh, I love this technology. It's so great. Well, yeah, it is. But two weeks from now, there's going to be a better one coming out. And if you are so deep into um, your, your technology, um, the, the one technology, <laughs> you're, you're going to miss out that there's an opportunity to do better. And so I, I think you need to respect it. You can get excited about it. but. Um, so if, if you um, are, are looking for just a focused number of variants, a SNP chip is ideal because a SNP chip um, has little probes on it for each specific alteration. So it'll look for SNP 19 star 2 separately from star 3, separately from star 17, separately from star, star 8, separately from some of the others that are there. But, uh, and so, but it will only look at those things. So if someone has a, um, a variant that was, uh, you know, is a legitimate variant, but just hadn't got on the platform, um, it would be missed by that sort of thing. Um, it's also important that, you know, and, and it, so a lot of people like the SNP chips because they're fast, they're a little bit cheaper and they only give you what you're looking for. You know, they, they don't give you anything else right. to deal with. So they miss no, some things. No surprises. <laughs> right, exactly. But you do need to know what's on there. So I mentioned the, the star eight example. Um, if, if, you, if you don't know that some of these variants are more common in certain ethnic groups, you might end up missing some stuff. Um, and so mm-hmm. like the, the usual suspect test for CYP2C19 with star two, star three, maybe star 17 is fine for a lot of people, but doesn't do well if you're, if you're focusing on um, non-white Right. Possibly Um, Mm non-Asian populations where there are variants that are dramatically important, need to be acted on, but just haven't been in the front discoveries because most of the discovery was done in white people. Um, Because the scientist, you know, even if the scientist wasn't white, often they were in a place where the most of the patients were. Um, Whereas um, the sequencing technologies, there you are going to get everything, you know, you're almost everything. Mm -hmm. So in that technology, they take the bits of DNA, chop it up into little snippets. They um, put it against a chip that has the chance to look at all the genome. And then you sequence it over and over again. And you end up where for each snip, you might have looked at that location, you know, 20 different times. So you have some real confidence that, wow, you know, 20 out of 20 times, this was this thing, or, you know, 18 out of 20 times it was here. And it gives you some a better quality control than you might get with the SNP chip, right. although not much better. There, there's plenty of good quality control in the SNP chips, but it does give you a more thorough look. So if you're doing discovery, so if I'm looking for my Aunt Rita's um, issue and I yeah. can do a whole genome, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the whole genome because mm-hmm. that's going to mean I can look at the genes that I, that I think are important, but right. also look at the genes that I didn't think of. Um, and, and so it could be there's something there. Um, 
also, if, if you're in a, looking at a gene and you just cannot find a platform that, that meets your criteria. So there's right. some pharmacists up in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area mm-hmm. who have a lot of the Hmong, the Hmong people, H-M-O-N-G, the Hmong people are um, their, their patients. Well, the Hmong people are not Chinese. They're not Japanese, where there has been a lot of sequencing. They're not Thai, where there's mm-hmm. been also some sequencing. They're their own you know, people. Of course, they're, they're human. They right. share a lot of things with all of us. But if you use the wrong platform, it's going to be completely useless. Um, right. And so often they'll go with sequencing because that way they can find everything and make some, some uh, decisions about it, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the, the SNP chips may not be quite what they need. So... It's one of those things where you do not need to know everything about the biochemistry of a technology, but you do need to understand what you're going to get, how fast and at what expense, and then be ready to apply it. That's wonderful. That's great information, um, Howard. And, you know, honestly, when I first started out um, in in my career in pharmacogenomics, I didn't know the difference. And, um, you know, I relied on the lab to tell me why their test was appropriate and such. So I think it, it's really valuable information for you to explain that to the audience. Um, and also just to plug in there that, you know, any laboratory that you're working with should be fully transparent about um, the genes, the variants that they're testing and which populations. Um, you know, for example, if, if their test wouldn't be appropriate for the moms, right? Um, so thanks, thanks for that information. Um, and, you know, you made another excellent point, Howard, that uh, validates the statement that I made earlier, that it takes a village to raise pharmacogenomics. And, you know, everyone who works in pharmacogenomics doesn't need to be an expert in every facet of pharmacogenomics to benefit the progression of pharmacogenomics into a standard of care. And, um, you know, smart practitioners, I know I do this, surround themselves with expert pharmacogenomics colleagues who can provide their area of PGX expertise when needed so that the practitioner can be good at, at what he or she is good at. So with that being said, Howard, I'm dying, no, and I'm sure my audience, <laughs> I feel like we're getting ready to open the Holy Grail. I'm sure my audience would love to know also, you know, who are your pharmacogenomics role models? And, you know, if you had to dial a friend in pharmacogenomics today, who would you call and what expertise could they offer you? Well, uh, another great question. I see why your podcast is so is uh, so popular. Um, so, I have a blend of folks that I call, and it's not. Um, you need to have basically you need to have people you can trust. It's not their age; it's their 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 blend of expertise and their willingness to be straight um, mm-hmm. is the the key thing for me. Um, so. Uh, Bill Evans uh, was my my mentor at St. Jude. Um, he subsequently was the CEO at St. Jude for a while, and so I'm able to go to him for for a lot of big picture questions. You know, he he of course has some great expertise uh, down in the in the lab and in, in the clinic. But um, often I'll go to him for questions about all right, we're trying to implement this at this health system, or trying to really trying to really look at at how uh, how this can happen. You know, what should we do? Um, right. And that, that becomes really valuable. Um, 
I have some, some colleagues that are molecular pathologists and finding a molecular pathologist that understands where her expertise is and where it stops is really important. And I mention that because there are some molecular pathologists that get offended with the idea that anyone needs to interpret their reports. Right. But the reality is that often the report is excellent. And frankly, we could not do our job if there wasn't an extremely well done molecular Correct. pathology report. Correct. But the medical decision, the, the decision around there is often in a sphere where they don't have a lot of experience. And so finding mm -hmm. a molecular pathologist who is extremely good at what she does, but also understands that there's stuff that she doesn't do mm -hmm. is, is really important. And it doesn't mean that she has to think you're the best at it, but right. she can still be useful to you. Um, right. and, and so I think that's an area that I, I find really important. Um, I, I often like to, um, talk to colleagues that are in drug safety at health systems mm -hmm. because they're also looking at things in a broader view and, and um, them and econ health economists, not academic health right. economists, yes. often they're too, too, um, mm -hmm. too hung up on their own model of this and that. But mm -hmm. if you take someone who's in the finance department <laughs> or yes. the clinical oriented part of the finance department, mm -hmm. um, those them and and the safe drug safety people can be real advocates for you. They yes. can be people who can help you understand what is the impact of what you're suggesting. Um, they they can really have a, an important effect that way. And and that's um, those those are people I go to. The other thing is, you know, I I always joke with my trainees that you know I'm I'm going to try to treat you well because someday I'll be working for you. <laughs> yes. Um, and. Um, while it hasn't directly happened yet, I'm sure it will, um, often, and often I'll go to them. So, you know, Jay Patel, uh -huh. Jay Patel trained right. with me, yeah. um, but he's made his own way in the uh -huh. a very large health system based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, but has mm -hmm. reached all across the Carolinas and, and beyond. Um, and he's learned lots of stuff that I don't know uh, yeah. I haven't done. And so, you know, I can go to him and say, hey, you know, Jay, we're thinking about this. What, you know, what do you think? Um, and and you know, he can come back and say, well, yeah, that's uh, you know, that's a great idea. Or you know, that's boy, this is one of your worst ideas you've ever had. Think about this and that. <laughs> oh yeah, that's okay, a real yeah, friend. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. You know, <laughs> yes, that's um, a real friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and no, and so just having those those people. The other thing I would encourage you, not you, because you literally already know all this stuff, but. Um, <laughs> But those people that are out there and they're like, you know what? I don't have a Bill Evans. I don't mm -hmm. have a Mary Relling. Right. I don't have a, a Jay Patel. I don't have a, I don't have a, um, well, figure out who you wish you could reach out to. Right. Because more often than not, that person is going to want to help you. Mm -hmm. And they may help you directly or they may say, I don't know anything about that, but here, try so-and-so. But I, I would encourage you to, um, if you need help, don't go to a convenient source. <laughs> go to an expert source. Uh -huh. And, you know, you see this with pharmacy students all the yeah. time. They'll, they'll ask each other something <laughs> and then, right. you know, end up falling into a ditch. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, they ask someone who's been there and can show them in, in you know, one sentence, they can be right mm -hmm. in the middle of the road again and going fast. Um, and, and so... The, if you don't have that role model, that that dial a friend person, reach out to the people who you wish you could. 
Right. And they may or may not be able to reply. They may or may not be able to help you. But, <laughs> you know, assume that they will until they tell you otherwise. Yep. Um, you know, be gracious about it if they say no. But, uh, um, you know, I think there's a because there's a lot of people taking up pharmacogenomics now that don't know anybody to call. Yeah. And you're going to you're going to need those people, whether you know it or not. Yes. And so you yeah. need to start figuring out who they are and just start reaching out and saying, hey, you know, if I need some help. Could I run this by you? Mm -hmm. That that is that answer is just perfect, and I'm just sitting here thinking that you know you're telling my story. Um, you know, back when I first started out, I didn't have any dial of friends in pharmacogenomics, um, and whether it was um, bold of me or <laughs> just me. I don't know. I would call up. I would just call people. Um, you know, I would look on LinkedIn and I'll be real frank with you. One of the, my first contacts in pharmacogenomics was the CEO of a very well-known pharmacogenomics company. <laughs> um, I mean, I just did it. Um, I figured, you know, what have I got to lose? The last, you know, the worst thing this person can tell me is to go fly a kite. Um, but you're right. I think um, that the people in, in pharmacogenomics and those of us that have, have learned so much and we've worked in it, we want to share our knowledge and, and we want the opportunity to, to get the information out there. And um, I wrote an article on LinkedIn, like, let me guide you through the hazards in the road, because there's no sense in you falling in those potholes like I did and, and trying to... <laughs> you know, trying to scrape yourself out. So yeah, I love that. I love that answer. Be bold, be brave. Um, give us a call. And on that note, Howard, you know, thank you so much for this episode. Such great information, great advice. Um, you know, well, I, I just hope you'll join us again because we have a whole lot to talk about. <laughs> Oh, and you know, who knows how many listeners you've inspired today, just like you did me in, in 2017. So how can those listeners contact you for more information? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I don't know if you have an uh, ability to put this on, on your, um, the, the site where the podcast is or whatever, but you know, H McLeod spelled the original way. So it's M C L E O D. 1965 you can guess what year i was born um at gmail.com is a is an easy place to contact me okay. uh, and I, i'll get back to you as soon as i'm able it's uh, some sure. days are busier than others um but that's you know that that's one way uh and you know it's a i really appreciate that you're doing this for the field i think that there's a lot of folks that need to realize that there is a there is a group together here trying to really make a difference and they're not alone and, yep. you know, you're, you're helping bring information and bring knowledge, but also, you know, just making it clear, you know, there is a, uh, a network of people trying to make a difference and, you know, they can really go for it. Thanks so much, Howard. And we look forward to speaking with you in the future. All right. Thank you. Thanks for your interest in PGX and for spending some time with us. Please share this podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For all of our episodes, please visit pgx4rx.com. That's pgx4rx.com.